0: So tonight, Joshua 23 and 24, we finish the journey with Joshua. Beginning in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 23, let's jump right in. It came about, after many days, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, For their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers. And he said to them, I am old, advanced in years. We've covered 30 years in the past four months. 30 years of Israel's history, 7 years of the conquest. From when Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan, from that point where they crossed the Jordan River and began the conquest of Jericho, and then Ai, and then the southern region, and then the northern region, seven years it took them to conquer the land. That conquest was then followed by another 13 years of divvying up the land among the tribes. It's interesting. They conquered it in seven. They took almost twice as long to get their inheritance, even though they had it how typical that is. We come to the Lord, we we find ourselves saved, but then it takes us years to begin to realize we can possess an inheritance. We can take hold of the promises of God. We can walk in every spiritual blessing that has been given us in all the heavens, Ephesians 1.3 reminds us. So they conquered in seven years. It took 13 years to finally divvy up the land. Then ten more years will pass. And Joshua, at the end of this book, is 110 years old. He's been around a while. He's seen a few things. As with his predecessor Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua will now end with a great farewell address to the people. And chapters 23 and 24 are that farewell address. As much as I can tell, chapter 23 is mostly spoken to the leaders of Israel, the shepherds, the elders. And then in chapter 24, he goes on into speaking to all the people of Israel. At least that's what seems to be indicated here. The elders in chapter 23, the rest of the people in chapter 24. But the bottom line is this whole address is for all of Israel. Now we're going to go through this farewell. And as we walk through these last couple of chapters tonight, I'm going to give you seven points of interest. Seven vistas from which we can stand and look down on the life of Joshua and the people of Israel. And hopefully learn a few things about ourselves. I want to tell you something though before we begin. I had an interesting conversation with a friend a couple of days ago. Okay, it was Lisa. And um, I, just, I didn't want to embarrass her by saying her name. But, but she would know right away that it was her. I, I thought it was great. Lisa walked in our front door. And I, I just, I'll warn you right now, if you have a conversation with me, there's a good chance it's going to show up somewhere in a teaching. So if you don't want to talk to me anymore, I understand. If people avoid me when they see me coming, I get it. I get it. Lisa walked in our door She's dropping off Chandler To play with Hayden And she just walked in She was a little flustered I don't even know What led up to it Or what had happened You know She can tell you that But she just goes Have you ever thought About teaching a class On life I'm like What do you mean She goes I just Just you know And we began talking About what was functional And what was dysfunctional And how can we tell The difference and I'm laughing to myself the whole time because I'm thinking as Lisa's asking this question that I'm not sure there is such a thing as functional. I'm pretty convinced we are all dysfunctional. It's called the sin nature. And it infects every family and every person. And it doesn't matter how self-righteous you may puff yourself up to be. You're still dysfunctional, my friend. Yeah. But she's asking, can we do a class on life? And, and, and it threw me back several years to when I used to do things like that in ministry. And I realized I haven't done a special class in three years. I haven't taken a topic and said, for the next five weeks we're going to deal with this. Or for the next ten weeks we're going to talk about this issue. I've just been, you know, kind of head down, going through verse by verse through the Bible. But I'll tell you what I told Lisa that night. We are in a class about life. This is a life class that you have come to tonight. You cannot walk through the Scriptures without discovering the truths that lead us into life, that show us what true functional living is. We're messed up. We're dysfunctional. So are the tribes of Israel, by the way. But in seeing their dysfunction and seeing how messed up they are, them and, and a whole lot of different people throughout the Scriptures, in fact, everybody except for Daniel and Jesus, they're the only two, that as I look at their lives, we don't see a whole lot of dysfunction there at all. Although I'm sure Daniel had some too. He just didn't write about it. But as we go through, it's messed up people called by a perfect God. And our lives can and should be affected by this. And I learned years and years ago, and it used to frustrate me as a kid, being bored by the Bible until one day I woke up and I said, That's not right. You shouldn't be bored by the Bible. There is nothing about the Scripture that's boring. So if you go to a church and you're bored, it's the pastor's fault. <laughs> and I'll put myself right up there. But if we're into the Word and we're listening to the Word and we're seeking God's teaching, there's nothing boring in here. And I, you know, the proof of that is, as I've said before, studying through Leviticus or Numbers. Books that a decade ago I never would have touched because I immediately thought Leviticus, boring... Exodus, fun until they get into the law, then boring. But when you really study God's Word as it is, the application to life, the reality about life, the life learning skills that we gain are stunning. And that's going to happen tonight. These seven vistas, as I put it before, or seven points of interest in these last two chapters are all about life. And if we will stand on these vistas and learn from them, I promise you tonight you're going to walk out the door and you'll say, I understand something about life I didn't know before. I have gained some of a foothold here that maybe I didn't have before. I know it's a lot to guarantee. It's a lot to promise. But hey, it's not my word. God's word, Isaiah 55 tells us, does not come back empty. So I'm convinced if we'll just walk through his word tonight, your life will be affected. Your mentality, your emotions, your spirituality is going to change. It has to because God's word doesn't come back void. So check this out. Seven different points of interest and the first one is Joshua's engagement. Joshua's engagement. He's an old man but he is still engaged in the process. He's still locked in to what God is doing. hundred and ten. Now I don't know about you, but I would assume at hundred and ten if I am still alive, it's going to be feet up on the couch. It's not going to be standing up, commanding a people, talking to them, exhorting them, entreating them as we're going to see Joshua do. He is engaged in the ongoing work of the Lord right up to his dying breath. And we see that in Moses. We saw that in Jacob. We saw it in Abraham. These men who once they get a sense of the Lord and their hearts get captured, they never stop. Which means there is no retirement in Christianity. If you're looking for it, you need to look in another religion because it doesn't exist here. You do not retire in Christianity. Joshua shows us he's engaged in the work of the Lord. Matthew 24, verse 45, Jesus said, "...who is the faithful and sensible servant or slave... Whom his master put in charge of his household To give them their food at the proper time Blessed is that slave Whom his master finds So doing when he comes Blessed is that servant Who is in charge of the master's household Who is doing the work of the servant When his master returns Not that servant who figured he completed the work And decided to settle down for twenty years But that servant who is still engaged. I read this last week out of John Corson's uh, commentary. A little bit about John Wesley. I don't know if you know a whole lot about Wesley. But we're told that in John Wesley's life, he traveled 250,000 miles on horseback going from town to town preaching the gospel. Before the advent of cars or anything else He rode a horse He wrote 400 books in his lifetime 400 I'm not sure if I've read 400 books He wrote 400 and he preached 40,000 sermons In his lifetime He was also self-taught in 10 different languages And check this out At the age of 81 Wesley wrote in his journal that he was angry Because he could only read for 5 hours at one sitting Before his eyes began to bother him At 86 he wrote that he was upset Because he had to cut back to two sermons a day I don't know how he did it I have trouble with two a week And this man had to cut back to two a day And that bothered him At the age of 88 He complained of his tendency to occasionally sleep in Until 5.30 (laughs) A.M This is a man who was engaged right up to the end and the passion and the ability to do that it's not a physical body we talked about it on Sunday it's the renewal of the spirit day by day the further down the line you go with the Lord and the more your spirit is renewed the more engaged you will become in the work of the Lord and there's no slowing down it's just increasing that's how I want to be in my latter years whether I live to be 43 or 110 whether I'm caught up by the Lord or I die in the Lord, I want to be engaged in the things of the Lord. Joshua, John Wesley, these guys were both engaged in the things of the Lord and they were confident and their lives were energized in Christ. Why? Because they knew their calling. They understood that this life was about the next. They understood this life was about Jesus Christ and they had to live for it. And gang, we've got to understand that God's got an incredible plan and that plan does not end until you take your last breath here and your first breath there. The plan is ongoing. Do not let any voices or any people tell you that it ends at a certain time. As long as you're walking this planet. As long as you're coherent. You are part of that sovereign plan. Moses and Joshua both began their leadership at the age of 80. Daniel went into the lion's den. You may have seen those little pictographs of him, pictures of Daniel. He wasn't a young man when he was thrown into the lion's den. He was an old man, probably 85 or 90 years old at that time. He was of that age, possibly the mid-90s, when he received that amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Pouring over the scriptures, praying his heart out to the Lord. Of course, you know the Apostle John received the revelation of Jesus Christ while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos in his 90s. These guys didn't know that they were supposed to slow down. No one ever whispered the words of retirement to them. They just kept going. They were engaged in the process. Engagement. I really like that word. Because there's a military sense into it. It speaks of taking on the enemy. Storming the gates. Advancing and holding in the heat of battle. I'm reading this book, I've shared many times, Exodus. And one of the things that's interesting is in the Arab-Israeli War, the War of Independence in 1948, the biggest challenge that the Israelites had, or the Israelis had at that time, was just holding on to these little kibbutzes placed all around Israel. If they could hold them, that was the key to success. And when they did take land, they had to hold it. They were engaged in the fight. But engagement isn't just a military word, is it? It's also a marital word. And for us to be engaged in the process, engaged in what God is doing, it indicates that we're preparing for something. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. How do I make myself ready for the great marriage of the Lamb? Stay engaged. Stay engaged. Stay engaged. I was thinking back to my own engagement and, and how much, you know, there wasn't a single thing Cheryl asked me to do that I didn't want to do. Now there are a lot of times she asks me to do something and I really don't want to do it. But man, when I was engaged, because that wedding day was looming. It was out there. I was heading for something. Joshua was engaged and that's how we are called to be. Living, looking forward to our wedding day. In fact, much of my preparation for the marriage of the Lamb happens in that very expectation that the Lamb is coming to get me. That Jesus is returning to call me home. First 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What are you hoping for? I'm hoping for the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm looking for that day. I am excited about it. John says in 1 John 3, verse 2, We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. It's an ongoing process. We had a great conversation in our shepherds meeting last night about what it really means to unconditionally love. I figured, you know, if I'm going to tell the whole fellowship, hey, we need to, we have been called to unconditional loving, to agape love. I think we probably ought to talk about it among the leaders. And so we did last night. And one of the things that was brought up and shared was this whole idea that it is a process that we enter into. You don't immediately jump from brotherly love to agape, unconditional love. You enter into a process where day by day you're saying, Lord, purify me to love like you love. Help me to love the way you do. Teach me whatever it takes. Show me today, Lord, how to be unconditional in my love for people today and then tomorrow you're going to have to teach me all over because I'm going to forget. Or I'm going to enter into a new situation where I'm not sure how unconditional love applies. Teach me. Show me. It's a process. It's engagement. And I love that we see in Joshua... This man, stand up. At the end of his 110 years, man, he is in the fight. He is still preaching the word. He is still engaged. In fact, when we get into chapter 24, eventually, you're going to find that he is opening up his mouth and becoming for the first time a prophetic mouthpiece for the Lord. He's given prophecies, but he's going to open his mouth and the Lord is going to begin to speak through Joshua in chapter 24. So engaged is this man in his latter years you want a life that's working, it begins with engagement. Being engaged. Verse 3 goes on and tells us, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. Joshua's exaltation. Vista number 2. Joshua's engagement. now we look at Joshua's exaltation and it's amazing. who's exalted? Who gets the credit for leading these people across the Jordan and taking the city and giving up the land? The Lord does. Joshua takes no credit for himself, although he could, although in our minds that he probably should. He was the commander. He led. He drew up the battle plans? Or okay, so it was the Lord. but he listened to the Lord. Doesn't Joshua get any credit? He doesn't want it. Joshua's exaltation is of the Lord. Joshua says, look at all that he's done. He's the one who's been fighting for you. Not me. I've just been one among you. Joshua literally removes himself from the equation as he exalts and praises the Father. And by the way, that's exactly what our Joshua did. Over and over and over. Matthew 15.31 says the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they said, this Jesus is a great guy. Well, that's not what it says. It says, and they glorified the God of Israel. There was something about the way Jesus healed, and the way he taught, and the way he moved and acted when he walked the face of the earth that caused people to immediately look up and praise God. Even though He was God, we know that. Looking back, we understand. Emmanuel, God with us, He was God in the flesh. And yet, Jesus had this way of turning all of the praise and the worship back to the Father. And when people saw Him at work and saw Him doing His thing, they praised the God of Israel. Luke 24, 52, talking about the ascension of Jesus, says, While He was blessing them, So that's 51. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping Him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And verse 53 in Luke says, They were continually in the temple praising God. Praising God. Worshiping the Father. Because Jesus' actions always directed glory to the Father. And by the way, consequently, the Father always turns the glory back to the Son. I love the study of the Trinity because within the Trinity what you see is Father glorifying Son Son glorifying Father Holy Spirit glorifying Son I mean they, they glorify each other you know all within this monotheistic Godhead this one God who we love but who has expressed himself in Jesus the Son in the Holy Spirit and in God the Father they all tend to focus on the others and sing glory in the other direction and that's amazing and it's wonderful and Paul says this is exactly how we are to live Here's another life principle for you, Lisa, all right? Life principle. Live your life with godly exaltation. If you want to have peace and joy and, and functionality in your life, don't take the credit. In every opportunity you have, turn it around to the Lord. Godly exaltation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves. Which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. problem is, too many of us want to be God. Too many of us want to claim lordship over our lives or over the lives of others. And the reality is, we are not God. We never will be God. We will never even be God with a little g. We're never going to have our own planets or our own solar systems. It's not going to happen that way. There's one God, and you and I are not Him. And so godly exaltation is how Jesus lived. It's what we see in Joshua. And Jesus invites us to share that mentality. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven live your life in such a way that when people see you doing what you're doing for the Lord all they do is glorify the Lord and it never comes back to you duck your head and let the glory go right on up to God Joshua is engaged Joshua Joshua is exalting the Lord number three Joshua's encouragement verse four Joshua's encouragement. He says, See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off, from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. The Lord your God, He will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And you might go, Wait a minute, though. I thought we read before that Joshua said God already did that. Back back in chapter 23, if you just look back there, or chapter 21, where is it? Yeah, chapter 21, verse 45, says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of all Israel failed all came to pass. Well, over here, Joshua is saying, the Lord will thrust them out from before you, drive them out from before you, and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Sounds like there's still more work to be done, and there is, but listen, here's the key. The Lord has given them the land. He has given them possession. But there's still work to be done. There are still bodies of outsiders, of Canaanites, of, of people that need to be driven out. And Joshua says, God will do it. He will thrust them out before you, but you have a responsibility. You possess. He drives, you possess. He pushes them out. You take that land and hold it. You keep it, Israel. You take hold of the promises of God. This is Joshua's encouragement. And again, as I said before, there is no such thing as retiring in Christianity. There is no such thing as passive Christianity. It's far too much of that. Let me just say honestly, in the church today, there is far too much pew-sitting, seat-warming, passive... I'll show up, but don't ask me to be involved, Christianity. I'll be part of that fellowship because I like the music. I don't want to serve. i got a lot of busyness at work, you know. I've got a whole family I'm raising. I've got too much going on in my life. I'll be there, but I don't, I don't want to engage. Joshua is encouraging otherwise. God's going to drive out the problems, the sin, the challenges in your life, but He wants you to possess the promises that He's given you. He wants you to take hold of what God has given the Lord will drive them out you and I we possess going on Joshua says be very firm keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand, or to the left, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. Verse 8, You are to cling to the Lord your God, as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you, and as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is He who fights for you just as He promised you. God fights for you. I really like that. God goes ahead of you. God drives out before you. You possess what's left behind. You grab hold of those promises. In that, in that war of 1948, all these kibbutzes are called kibbutzim. Kibbutzim. All these different, that's the plural for kibbutz. They were all filled with Israeli soldiers and they were just at the beginning. In fact, before the war even broke out, before they declared independence, as Britain was slowly pulling out of Israel. All these different soldiers were in the the kibbutzes and there weren't many and they didn't have anything in the way of arms and they just had barely enough to try and defend themselves. And they were being attacked from all sides. And there's a particular story that was very interesting about one small kibbutz. There was a group of Arabs who were advancing, talking to 2,000 Arabs were going to advance on this one kibbutz that had 200 Israeli soldiers in it. And they were done for. And the Arabs advanced, and the Israeli soldiers drove them out. First wave. The Arabs advanced again, and the Israeli soldiers drove them out. Second wave. Third wave, fourth wave, four times the Arabs tried to take this kibbutz and those passionate Jews drove them back. But on the fifth time they were down to very little ammunition and they knew there was no way they could keep these Arabs out. The Arabs began to cross the field coming in toward this kibbutz and as they are advancing suddenly there was a massive downpour. And all of the ground that was dry and cracked before instantaneously became muddy and the Arabs became bogged down and stuck, literally stuck in the mud. And the Israeli soldiers sat there on the edge of the kibbutz and just started picking them off one by one and drove them back. And they held back kibbutz. See, you don't have to do the fighting. God fights for you. And by the way, the thing I love about looking at the modern state of Israel is is just seeing some modern miracles that have taken place. And there are dozens of them in the way that God has protected the people and has continued to carry out His plan. He fights for you. Joshua's encouragement, man, let the Lord fight and you hold. When you take possession, you don't worry about doing the battles. You just hang on to what He's given you, what He's promised you. Again, it sounds a lot like engagement. Look at verse 11. Speaking of engagement. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. These are not the typical words of a military man. Fight! Shoot! Take ground! Love! (laughs) And yet is there a more powerful word in the arsenal of a Christian? Love! Love! And Joshua says, Love the Lord your God. Let that be what you're about. You want to take and hold property, possessions, promises, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. It is dynamic and it's active. And by the way, truly loving the Lord your God affects the way you treat people. You cannot love the Lord your God and not love people. I've heard it said. This is a difficult saying. I'm going to say it anyway. You only love the Lord as much as the person you love the least and I'm not sure if I totally agree with that because I don't like how that makes me feel <laughs> and it's not scripture so we're okay but the reality game is that the Bible does tell us you cannot say I love God and hate your brother can't do it if you have hate in your heart for anyone you don't love God which is why I think Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because if you do that first, then the second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, it's easier to do when you have a passionate love for the Lord your God. Because you know what? The more you love the Lord, the more you're aware of the mind of the Lord. And as you begin to see people the way he does, you have to love them because he does. So Joshua says, love, hang on. We we talked about this Sunday. Peter, John chapter 21. Peter, Jesus said, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I really like you. All right, I'll take really like, Jesus says. I'll take brotherly love right now. You really like me? Then what does he tell Peter to do? Tend my sheep. Shepherd my lambs. Feed my lambs. You really love me? Show me. By the way you love other people. Loving the Lord, by the way, also challenges us to throw out anything that might threaten or replace the Lord. Anything in our lives that might get in the way of that love relationship that we have, Joshua tells the people, and the Lord would tell you and I tonight, to throw it out of our lives. Joshua says here, in the verses right before this, verse 7, he says, Don't even mention the name of their gods. Don't even speak. Oh yeah, the Canaanites, they had that god, Molech, you know. Malachi, yeah, that God, Baal. Don't even go there. Don't even mention the name. Why, Joshua? Because he knew something. He knew something. And it's here that Joshua's tone gets deadly serious. He moves from encouragement now to number four, Joshua's entreaty. As he begins to entreat, literally to warn the people. Verse 12, he says, If you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations these which remain among you and you intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you but they will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you and you might say wait a minute that sounds kind of racist don't intermarry have nothing to do with these other people it's not racist gang it's protection. Remember, the people that were in the land at the time, the Canaanites, were sick with their sin. Their paganism was so bad that after 400 years of patience and mercy, God finally says, we've got to shoot this rabid dog. We've got to take him out. Because generation after generation of children are either being slaughtered on the hot arms of Molech, the idol, or they're growing up to slaughter their children on the arms of Molech. The sin of their belief system was so twisted and so sick. God said, Israel, part of the reason I'm sending you in there is judgment on the sin of these people and you are to wipe them out. That's why he says, have nothing to do with them. Now you and I in our lives, we're called to live in the world and not be of the world. And we are called to love and evangelize and invite people to come to know the Lord. But I will tell you this, if there is anyone or anything in your life that could draw you away into idolatry or into sin yourself have nothing to do with it. God doesn't want you to put your life at risk sin-wise. If you have a struggle with alcohol, don't go hang out at the bars thinking that's who you're going to save. Bad idea. Okay? Go to the mall. Now, if you have a trouble with shopping, maybe you should be in the bars. No, maybe not. But do you understand what I'm saying here? We know what our soft spots are, what our trouble areas are. Those are the areas that are your Canaanites. Don't even mention those idols. If you have idols you used to serve in your life, don't go there. Don't mention them. Have nothing to do with them. Joshua is is he's begging the people, he understands something here. He goes on and says in verse 14, Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you, not one of them has failed. And that should encourage us. Because that means God's word doesn't fail. Which means the promises He's made to you and to me are solid and secure and you can stand on them. Verse 15, it says, It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats, until He has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress, notice now Joshua's not saying if, He's saying, when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given to you. This is not what might happen to Israel. These last two verses of chapter 23 are prophecy. This is when you do this, here's what's going to happen. He's doing exactly what Moses did at the end of Deuteronomy. Israel, you're going to sin. You're going to break the covenant. You're going to violate it. And God's going to kick you out of the land. And that's what's coming. And even though it's it's mixed up with with begging and entreating and please don't let go of the Lord. Cling to him. Love him. The truth is here. This is coming. You will do this when you transgress the covenant. Something we need to understand about Israel and why their whole history is part of this deal is God is showing us the result of sin. First He chose, chose to show, show us the result of sin with a people. Then He chose to show us the result of sin in a person. Let me explain that. The result of sin in Israel is an explicit picture of what happens when man rebels against God. That We might understand it better. James chapter 1, verse 14... James says, When each one is tempted, he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or full grown, it brings forth death. That's the process. Temptation. Lust conceives. It gives birth to sin. Sin then grows up. And it brings death. And we see this in Israel. We see this in the entire history of Israel. From Haman to Hadrian to Hitler to the Holocaust. Straight through the whole history. From the moment they were kicked out of the land in the beginning up until present day. We have watched the result of a people who chose to rebel against God. Who were offered every bit of His goodness and His grace. Who were given His perfect law. Who were given every opportunity to be protected by Him. Covered by Him. To follow Him. But chose no... We're going to chase after these gods of stone and wood. We're going to worship poles. We're going to hide out in in high places and worship pagan idols. And by that choice, we see what happens down through history. Rejection of and rebellion against God's law, in other words, sin, it results in brutality and horror. Walk through Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial. That's not just the brutality against a people group. It's also the result, gang. Listen, the result of sin. Oh, Rick, wait a minute. You're saying that Israel deserved the Holocaust? We all deserve the Holocaust. We all deserve to die for the sin in our lives. Truth be told, justice be meted out, every one of us deserve to be pictures on the wall in the Holocaust Memorial. And I know that's harsh, but gang, part of the reason we have the whole story of Israel here is so we understand, and God doesn't want us to miss this, that sin will kill us. result in horror and brutality and the worst kind of life and you can look at their history and discover that but it's not just a people that God used to explain to us to show us what sin was like. We see the result of sin in the people Israel, we also see the result of sin in the person of Jesus and this is the hardest to take of all because Jesus is the only one who didn't sin. And yet the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus, perfect Jesus, sweet Jesus, Lamb of God Jesus, became sin. What does sin do? It crucifies you. It ends up on the cross. When we think about the picture of Jesus at Calvary brutalized, beaten beyond recognition bloodied and battered what we are looking at is the full extent of sin that's what sin accomplishes and when we choose sin that's the direction we're heading that's what we're saying in essence we want when we rebel against the grace of God and choose instead sin listen again to verse 13 this is interesting to me Joshua said, Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations from before you, but they will be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip to your sides and thorns in your eyes. Who does that describe? Whips to his side as he was whipped within an inch of his life with the flagellum. Those pieces of leather, those leather straps that had bone and glass and stone tied into the ends of them so that when it landed on his back and dug into his flesh, it was dragged across his flesh, ripping his back to hamburger, whipped to his sides. And what about thorns to the eyes? As the crown of thorns was not just lightly placed on his head as a showpiece, but was crammed down into his forehead and into his eyes to where he likely couldn't see at all for the blood that was pouring down his face. And Joshua says, Israel, that's what happens. That's what happens if you rebel against the Lord. If you don't follow the Lord, then sin is going to be a snare and a trap and a whip and and thorns. And Jesus stepped into this snare willingly when He went back to Jerusalem. He accepted the trap authoritatively. What do you mean by that, Rick? I mean in Jesus' own authority, He went to the cross. I've shared this before. If you want proof of that, read the Gospel of John. Read the last six or so chapters of John and watch how Jesus intentioned, purposefully, to go to the cross. How He literally works Pilate. How He is in full command of everything, even to the point of His death, when Jesus says, It's finished. I'm done. I've completed what I came to do. And died after six hours on the cross when normally it took three days. And so he was in control, but he accepted that trap. And the whip applied to his side, the thorns pressed into his skull. The punishment that Joshua the son of Nun said would come upon Israel was literally borne on the shoulders of Joshua the son of God. Yeshua at Calvary.